God the Lord is full of mercy, slow to anger, full of grace. That's why we're gathered here today, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're gathered here because God is full of grace, full of mercy, slow to anger. That's the hope that we have as we gather in His presence, the Holy God. And He is going to speak to us now through His Word to convict us, to show us what He requires of us, and to show us His mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. This is what we have from our God today as we rejoice together. So now we're going to turn to God's Word as we hear it read to us and proclaimed to us. If you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2, we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In Zechariah, the passage that we had just read, one of the condemnations that God levels against the people of Israel is their inability and unwillingness to care for the poor and the widows, for those who are low in society around them. And we're going to see something of that nature in this passage this morning, that the unmercifulness of people that even are in the church, even among us here this morning. And so we're going to read this text and then Pray and ask God to help us to understand it. Hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you... Sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as needy people, as those who are poor and weak, and our hearts can so often be hard. But Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us now to open the ears of our hearts to hear your word, 
that your spirit would apply them to our hearts, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would turn to Christ our Savior, and that we would walk in lives of obedience to you. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This text may not seem like it at first, but it is all about what is the standard that you use to judge other people. The text begins with a call to that of partiality is something that is inconsistent with those who hold faith in Jesus Christ. That there is something about this way of judging others that is not consistent with being a Christian. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, this is not the way that you are supposed to act. So the question I would like to ask us this morning is, what is the standard that you use to judge others? How do you evaluate other people? And as this text points out to us, how do you evaluate other people in the church, most particularly? How do you evaluate people as they, simply put, walk through the doors of this church? What is it that first comes to your mind as you see them? What do you think as you look at the way that they're dressed? What do you think as you look at them as they bring their kids in? All the rabble and arousal that comes with kids that brings them in. What do you think of them as you look at their ethnic background? What do you think of them as you look at their age, young or old, or maybe the same age as you? These are all many things that can be standards by which we judge other people. But James is going to show us another standard in this passage, what we are supposed to use as we judge others. The problem is not so much judging. You can have a good judge, and he can judge rightly. The problem in this passage is the standard that they use to judge other people. James divides this text, I think, pretty neatly for us. There's going to be two points for this sermon this morning. Judging others. How do we judge others? Or how are they judging others wrongly? Judging others. But then... In the second half of this passage, James turns to, how do we judge ourselves? So we're going to look at first, judging others. James paints a picture here first of the way we judge others wrongly. He uses this word partiality. I don't know if that's a word you use too often in your your conversations. He was being a, a partial person. He was partial in his judgments. That's not something we usually say. So what does this mean? I think it's Pretty clear from this passage in some sense of what it means to be partial in your judgments, but some others, uh, English translations, use the word favoritism. That might be a word that you know. If you're a child here this morning, you might know what it's like when your parents show your favor to your brother or sister and you don't get what it is. You think they are showing favoritism. And what is a child's favorite response when their sibling gets something they don't get? That's not fair, right? Now, we think this is something that might be reserved exclusively for children, but we adults behave the same way. We know what favoritism is. Ultimately, the dictionary, one of the dictionaries I read, defines it this way. It's giving preferential treatment to someone at the expense of another person. You are showing favoritism. You're showing favor or goodwill to somebody at the expense of showing it to somebody else. That's why we cry out, that is unfair. And the Greek word for this is made up of two words. It's made up from 
face and receive. Ultimately, what it means is we receive somebody by their face, by their appearance. We receive somebody at face value. Now, we know that's not a good way to evaluate people. This doesn't have to be physical appearance alone, even though it shows up in this text this way this morning. There's many ways that we can evaluate people at face value. But primarily, it is the way that they appear to us. That is the first thing that comes to us as we judge people. Ultimately, it's basing your evaluation of somebody on an external factor about them, something that they may not have control over, or it might be something that they have control over and you don't like it for whatever reason. You may have good reasons for why you don't like that, but you may have wrong reasons for why you don't like that. Partiality is also a legal term. In Scripture, a judge is not supposed to show favoritism. It is an injustice. It's not just unfair. It's actually a form of injustice in society when a judge shows partiality in their judgment. They're supposed to be impartial. Leviticus 19 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You should not show favoritism to the poor, have an undue sense of sympathy that would cause you to overlook the offenses that they've committed, and you should not show favoritism towards the rich that you might benefit by showing them favoritism. Proverbs 24 also says, it says, these are also the sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. So this is the sin that is occurring in this passage, the sin of partiality. But then James jumps immediately to paint a picture for us of what partiality looks like. And he describes two men walking into church. And these two men that walk into church could not be more different from one another. The first man walks in, and the text tells us that a man walking in wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now, we might think a gold ring, that's not that big of a deal. We all, if we're married, we're probably wearing a gold ring. I venture that half of you are wearing some form of gold on your body right now. But in that time, wearing gold in public was a very big deal. It was not common for people to wear gold. So immediately, this is something that's shiny and stands out, and people are aware of. That person is wearing gold. They are wealthy. Then the text tells us that this person is wearing fine clothing. Now, that's a good translation of this word, but this word shows up in the book of Revelation as well, this word for fine clothing. And really how this word means and why they translate it as fine is it's shining or brilliant. In Revelation, the same word is used to describe stars, to describe angels, and to describe saints as they are cleansed from their sin and they stand before God. Really, this man walks in and his clothes are so white that he is shining. He is almost angelic in appearance. Now, the contrast could not be greater with what's happening with the next man who walks through the door. A poor man in shabby clothing. This word is literally dirty. He has dirt on himself. He's a dirty man. A man who is so white and and clean in his appearance that he is shining. And then another man who is dingy, dusty, dirty. 
where you look at him and you think, I don't even know if I want to shake your hand. I might get sick. I need to go use some hand cleaner after I touch you. How does people respond in this situation? Well, James paints a scenario that maybe he's even witnessed. I encountered a scenario like this actually in my internship down in Florida once. I preached a sermon on uh, a passage in Luke about the Pharisees who were trying to pick the places of honor at the tables around when Jesus came to sit and join the Pharisees at a meal. Jesus was a rabbi, so it was an honor to have a rabbi on the Sabbath over for dinner. Now, all the people at this dinner were trying to pick the best seats in the house, kind of like sitting in the very front when you go to a concert. Maybe not like church. We won't kind of go that far. But it's like going to the very front of a concert where you want the best seats in the house closest to the person or the band or whoever it is that's performing. But after the service was over, a man walked through the doors in shabby clothing. Now, mind you, our congregation down there is mostly middle class, upper middle class, elder, older people and elderly people, and they're dressed nicely. They're dressed in their Sunday best. But a homeless man, after the service, walked through the door, and he was filthy. He had dirt under his fingernails. His hands were dirty. And my gut reaction when I saw this man named Javier walk through the door was, I have no idea what to do right now. But I had just finished preaching a sermon about welcoming people no matter where they come from in walks of life. So here comes this man, filthy, into our church, and he asks for food. So I walk this man to our gathering table where we have all the snacks and food after church to gather food. And you could just see people thinking, what do we do? What do we do with this man? And that was a real challenge for me. And I had to walk him through and eventually got him some food and figured out some of his issues that he had and was able to set him up with some help that he needed. But it was a very challenging moment where God said, here's a moment of reality. This is James 2 in real life right in front of your face. How are you going to respond to this man? Are you going to take him off to the side and bring him out of sight so we don't have to see him? Like what happens in this passage. Or are you going to welcome him? Are you going to shake his dirty hand? Are you going to say hello to him? Are you going to treat him just like you would treat anybody else in that congregation? So I faced something similar to what this was like. Now, I did not do it perfectly, but it was an interesting thing that happened there. But James points out a couple things here with this, is that he says that you, when you see this wealthy man, he says, and if you pay attention, if you show attention to him, if your eyes are set on him, if there is an excessive attentiveness that you show to this person. Now, why would we do that to a rich person when they walk through our doors? Why would we want to show them excessive attention? Well, I think simply we think we might benefit. If we befriend them... They are going to befriend us. They might have some benefits, as we might say, friends with benefits, that you, they'll invite you over. Maybe they'll open up their home to you. Maybe they'll bring you along on their vacations or their trips. And we think, yeah, that would be really fun. I'd like to do that. And so we say to the rich man, here, here's the best seat. We don't want to get your 
brilliant, white, shining clothes dirty. We want you to be clean and, and to be honored. We don't want to dishonor you. But the poor man walks in, and then what do we do? We look at him. Okay, well, it doesn't matter where you sit, because you're already dirty, so it's not like there's any problem if you sit over here off to the side where the cobwebs are, or down at our feet where the servants work and, and sit. You just go ahead and sit down there. Go ahead and get dirty by our feet. And often we have ways of attempting to justify this. Like I said, these are the ways that we try to justify this is that we wouldn't want these people to get dirty. We wouldn't want the rich man to get dirty. We wouldn't want, it doesn't matter if the poor man gets dirty, he's already dirty. There's no problem here. These are ways that we judge in our minds. These are the standards that we use to judge in our minds. But why is this wrong? Why is this kind of evaluation wrong? Well, James gives us two reasons. The first thing he says is you have made distinctions. This means you are setting up two different kinds of evaluations of how you're going to judge people. You've made distinctions, that you have a waveringness in your heart, that you have, you're at odds with yourself about how you treat people. You treat some people one way, and you treat other people another way. And Doug Moo, a commentator, says, the improper divisions being made between rich and poor reflects the improper divisions harbored in the minds of the believers. Consistently Christian conduct comes only from a consistently Christian heart and mind. What James is ultimately saying is, you're at odds with yourself. You have an unequal standard that you are applying. Because in your own heart, you have an unequal standard that you hold. And so that leads him to his second thing that he, he evaluates them as. He says, you are judges with evil thoughts. You're judges with evil thoughts. The problem is not that they're judges. It's not that they're passing judgment. The problem is the standard that they're using to pass judgment. And James calls it evil. Something else is controlling your thoughts. It's evil. Something in your heart is controlling your desires. It's evil. In essence, James is saying to us, we have hearts that are odds with who God has called us to be because our hearts are divided with themselves. We profess outwardly that we wish to obey God and follow Him. We hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Yet we harbor evil intentions in our own hearts. And what is the evil that we're harboring in our hearts? Well, it's as crude as this. You have deemed the clothing of the rich man as of more importance than the entire person of the poor man. That's the evil of the heart that James is pointing out. And James works now to correct this. He wants them to judge others rightly. And he uses a couple things to help them think about this and to help us think about how do we judge others rightly. What do we need to think about? First, that James points out is that God honors the poor. Listen to how he describes this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. You have dishonored the poor, but God has honored them by making them rich in faith and giving them the inheritance of the kingdom. First, he makes them rich in faith. He makes them rich in faith because does it take more faith to trust God when you don't know where your meals are going to come from every day or when you have plenty of money in your bank account that you know that you can make it to the end of the month on the money that you have in there? Who needs more faith? The poor man. And God has given it to them. But they haven't abandoned the Lord. They haven't turned their back on him saying, Lord, I don't know where my food's going to come from, so that means you are unfaithful to me. They trust in the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know where all my needs are going to get met, but I trust that you are going to provide for me. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. You didn't know where you're going to lay your head at night. You didn't know if you were going to have a job the next day. It takes a great amount of faith to trust that the Lord is going to provide for you. God has made them rich in faith, but he also makes them those who inherit the kingdom of God. Their poverty is only apparent. It may look that way, but these are actually among the most wealthiest individuals in the entire world. They will inherit God's kingdom. If I told you you were going to inherit the entire throne of Queen Elizabeth, what would you think? You may say, well, I don't have it right now, but I'm going to have it, and I'm going to be very, very wealthy. You would think very differently about yourself, and others would think very differently about you too. And James is saying, the poor are not just, they're not going to inherit the queen's kingdom. They're going to inherit God's kingdom. And how much wealthier are they than this man who walks through the door with fine clothing? God is the one who has honored them. He has shown them honor. But then James points out a second thing to confront our evil thoughts. He says, not only that God has honored the poor, but the very people that you are trying to honor, they dishonor you. You may very well be throwing yourself on the floor, prostrating yourself before somebody who is going to take you to court. It's the rich who take you to court. They're the ones who bring you into judgment. They're the ones who take you to court and sue you and take your money. And probably those fine clothings that they're wearing may very well have come from the money they have taken from poor people. Now, this is not always the case. Every rich person is not wealthy because they have gained their money through improper means. That's not, I think, the point of what James is saying, is that all rich people are bad. But as a rule, James says, it's the wealthy who have the money to hire lawyers to take you to court. You think you're going to get favor from these people, but in reality, you're going to get dishonor. But it goes even deeper. They don't just oppress you, form lawsuits against you. They actually blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called. It's this whole inversion of honor and shame. 
that the very ones who you are seeking to honor, they dishonor your God. Because they say, I don't need God. I have everything I need. I'm not like this poor man who has to constantly depend on God for everything that he has. I'm well taken care of. Why do I need God? Why do I need to pray to him and ask to provide for me when I've already done it myself? They blaspheme God. Is this the kind of thing that you want to be identified with in your heart? So what then is the standard that we need to use to judge? How are we to judge rightly when the rich man and the poor man walk through our doors? When the normal person, when the person of a different ethnicity, when the person of a different age comes into your life, how are you going to evaluate them? Well, James takes an interesting turn. He doesn't immediately say, okay, here's the standard you need to judge other people. He says, no, this is a standard that you need to judge yourself. And this is our second point this morning. James shows us that we need to judge ourselves. James shows that ultimately God's law is the standard that we need to use. But we obviously, if we're doing these kinds of things, we haven't judged ourselves using God's law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James is saying, okay, hypothetically, if you're doing this, if you're loving all your neighbors, the rich man, the poor poor man, as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you do this thing that I point out here in your life, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. What James is showing us is that we actually haven't held up God's law to our hearts as we think we have. We have another standard. If we held up God's law to our hearts, we would have approached that situation very differently. Our law, ultimately, has been ourselves. I am the standard. I decide. I'm the standard of choosing what's good and right and what's wrong and not appropriate. Not God's law. My law. But God's law says to love our neighbor. And one can think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, something we studied in Bible study just recently this week, that the Pharisee or the the man that comes to Jesus, Jesus says, you know, here's the commandments, here's what you're supposed to do. And the man says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Seeking to justify himself, he says, who's my neighbor? He wants to find an out. And that's what we do. And this, as Jesus shows, can be anyone, even people you despise. See, the fundamental problem with partiality, with favoritism, is that it's a failure to love. It's obvious, but it needs to be said, is that it's a failure to love our neighbor, whoever they may be. Because we so often fall into this. And this is a far deeper issue than simply trying to get ahead in your life by showing favoritism to a rich man. James is showing that it's our hearts that have gone astray. It's our hearts that have gone astray. The law is showing us that we cannot have partial obedience. James continues. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, or verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do, not, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is showing we cannot have a partial obedience in our following of Christ. God's law is given by God. We can't give obedience to one part of it that we think is really important while ignoring or suppressing another part of God's law. We are called to follow all of it. And it is God who has given this law. And so if we disobey the law, we're disobeying God. And if we disobey one part of it, we're disobeying the lawgiver. And if we fail in one part of it, we've failed in all of it. And James drives this home to us this morning. Because we excuse ourselves with obedience in one area for lapse or failure in another area. I haven't committed adultery, but James is showing, well, okay, maybe you haven't committed adultery. You may feel good about yourself, but you are committing a form of murder. And there's a reason that James points to that commandment here. Now, I want to make a qualification that there is, this isn't to deny that some sins are more heinous than others. Some sins are more grievous than others. But we can't seek refuge in one form of obedience when we leave another form undone. You can't say, well, but I'm, I've done this. I've kept this part of God's law, so it's okay. It's not as bad that I haven't done that. James is saying, no, you're lawless. And why murder? Why does he point to murder here? You might think he would point to stealing. Well, this is what our larger catechism says about the command to not murder. The larger confession says on the duties that are required for those who do not murder, is they're supposed to be, have charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior. This is what's required of us, not to not just to not murder, but to treat others with kindness and patience and meekness, to love them, to seek to preserve their life, to help them. That's what James is showing. You're ultimately a murderer. Now, maybe you have not done the heinous form of that act, but you have done a lesser form, but it's still a violation of God's law. But James, again, makes an interesting turn here. Because he knows where all of us are at at this point in this sermon. Where we're all at at the point in this text. We realize that we have all broken God's law. And one way or another, we have failed. We have done these very things. And maybe it's not these two commandments that he points out here, but maybe it's one of the other eight. And we feel the weight of it. In verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Law of liberty? What is he talking about? How does he get to this issue of liberty and being judged under it? 
Now, our whole life is to be lived in reference to God's law. And Christians are not exempt from God's law. We don't just say, well, Jesus forgives us and he fulfilled the law, so I'm all done with it and I do whatever I want. It's not at all what James is advocating for here. But he describes God's law in a very interesting way. He calls it the law of liberty. Now, most of you would think of laws as restraining liberty. Is there actually oppression? The more laws that multiply, the less things you can do. You think, that's not liberty. But what does he mean by calling it liberty? Verse 13 explains it for us. Verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Ultimately, the law of liberty is a law that is given to us in mercy. Law is given to us free of condemnation. Imagine that. God's law given to you, no condemnation when you fail to keep it. The point James is getting at here is that the law has come to us not to condemn us as Christians, to convict us of our unrighteousness and keep us under the weight of it, saying, you must keep this in order to earn favor with God. No, as Christians, we've been freed from the burden of earning favor with God through keeping this law. You're no longer bound to the curse that comes with that law when you fail it. Because as Christians, as we know in this text, we failed it. It's abundantly clear that that's where we are. And this is why James begins this whole section with this phrase where he says that we are to show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot begin one step of obedience in God's law if we ever step outside of Jesus Christ. We cannot obey God except as we do it in faith in Jesus Christ. We are not those who rely upon our law-keeping. We rely upon Christ's law-keeping. And it is a law of liberty to us because Christ has stripped the law of its curse from us. That he is the one who suffered that curse for us. So when God's law comes to us, it shows us the way to live. But we are now free to live in that, knowing that we have no longer bear the punishment and the brunt of the condemnation of the law. We don't live in fear of its threats as Christians, because Christ has stilled the thunder of God's law, as the old song wrote. And one book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity puts it like this, the law comes to us and does not say, do this for life, but we receive the law as, as, as those who say, we do this, we obey from life. We are those who have life, who have been made alive, who God sees as has, having already fulfilled all of it perfectly in Jesus Christ. And so we must lastly judge ourselves with the gospel. Not just simply with the law, 
but ultimately with the gospel. See, the problem for these Christians was that they were sinning without reference to mercy. Mercy was not a category that was coming into their mind. And James is like, what are you doing? You're Christians. You have faith in Christ who had mercy on you. But he wants to point out to them, you yourselves have received mercy. You received mercy. They had accepted that they would not be judged on the basis of their performance. That God would not judge them on the basis of how they did. That God would judge them on the basis of somebody else. And God showed mercy to them. He did not cast them away. He did not put them down into the lowest parts in his relationship with them and say, you're pretty good, but you've, you know, you've done some bad things. You're off to the side. No, he's shown mercy to all of us. He's shown kindness to us. We didn't deserve any of it. And what did he give to us? As James shows us, he gave us a kingdom. He gave us Christ. So in turn, how could these same Christians turn around and be merciless towards other people? And James wants us to reflect on this final truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. How does mercy triumph over judgment? That's an interesting thing to say. How does it triumph? How does it gain victory over it? Well, judgment decides ultimately that somebody doesn't measure up. It's a way to say that you're not good enough, or what you did was not good enough, or what you did was wrong and evil and sinful. And that's what happens when we treat people the way that James described earlier in this passage. You're not good enough, you're dirty. But mercy triumphs over judgment because it withholds. Judgment. See, God could have rightly judged us, but what did he do? He withheld his judgment from us. He held it back. And he put it on his son. He withheld his judgment from us and instead gave us life through Jesus Christ. Gave us life in the face of his judgment. And so mercy triumphed over judgment. Judgment no longer has any say in the place, in the Christian life, for you as a Christian. There is no more judgment for us. We will not be evaluated on the basis of how good our works is in order to be saved. And so we are therefore those who live according to mercy. We are those who know ourselves as those who have received mercy. Mercy has triumphed over judgment for us. And so James is encouraging the believers and encouraging us. Do you know yourself as that? Do you know yourself as one whom God's mercy has triumphed over his judgment for you? Is that the standard which you use to judge? Is mercy the standard that you use? 
Or is it some standard that you use in your own self? See, ultimately, we don't get rid of God's law. We don't say it's irrelevant. It has no place here. Say God's law is holy and righteous and good and necessary. As the psalmist says, I love God's law. Because we see in it the perfection of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we see in it that God has now called and said to us that we are no longer obligated to fulfill that in order to earn favor with God. And if we're not obligated to earn favor with God on the basis of our performance, but in looking to Jesus Christ, how can we hold that same standard towards others in that same way? How can you hold an evil standard towards others? So James says, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. You have been judged by mercy. You have been judged by mercy. And let God's mercy rule in your heart. Bask in it. Revel in the mercy that you have received in Jesus Christ. And know that God can work in you so that you can show mercy to those around you as well. Let's pray and turn to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have shown us mercy in Jesus Christ. That we are not those who have deserved any of it, but you have withheld your judgment from us. Lord, we know how weak and frail we are. We know how often we turn in sin and we know the evil thoughts of our hearts. And so, Lord, would you work in us to become merciful people, that we would reflect the mercy that we have received from Jesus Christ. Would you do this by your Holy Spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.